Good morning. My name is Diana. The Old Testament reading is found in Psalm 133. Look at how good and pleasing it is when families live together as one. It is like expensive oil poured over the head, running down onto the beard, Aaron's beard, which extended over the collar of his robes. It is like the dew on Mount Hermon, streaming down onto the mountains of Zion, because it is there that the Lord has commanded the blessing, everlasting life. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Martha. The New Testament reading is found in Colossians 4, 7 through 18. Tychicus will tell you about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, they will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Artychicus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him and Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you, and for those in Laodicea and in Aeropolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, also have it read to the church of the Laodiceans, and see also that you read the letter from Laodicea. They say to Archippus, See that you fulfill the ministry you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my very own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. The word of the Lord. Greetings, church. Bless the Lord. Bless the Lord. This reading comes from John. This is our Lord speaking with us. It'll be chapter 17, verses 20 through 23. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, that they all may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, that they, the world, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved me and loved them, even as you loved me. Gospel of the Lord. Praise, Praise the Lord. Let's remain standing as we pray. 
Almighty and gracious God, we thank you for your word to us. We ask now that as we hear it uh, being opened up, that you would open up our own hearts to hear your word speaking to us. Lord, let the meditation of my heart and the words of my mouth be pleasing to you and cause us by your Holy Spirit to hear your word to us, we pray. In Christ's name, everybody said amen, amen, amen. You may be seated. Welcome, everybody. It's great to see you here. Thank you for coming out on a cold uh, day. It is, you are the faithful ones. You are the strong, resilient ones, and it's great. Um, it, I, love, I love gathering together as the church. I love hearing your voices singing. Uh, thank you, Abby, for leading us, and it's just beautiful to hear everyone singing together. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. Um, earlier this summer, our, our family got to take what, you know, is very likely just sort of the trip of a lifetime, and, and we, we made some amazing memories. We went to England for a few weeks because I was graduating uh, with my doctoral stuff and all of that, and we wanted the family to be there. And so once we spent, you know, the, the, the money, so let's, let's take the kids, then we knew, okay, we're, now we're going to need to rely on the kindness and hospitality of friends and a few strangers so that we don't have to spend money on housing. And so all of the people that vaguely, you know, sort of mentioned, oh, if you ever come, you can stay with us, whether out of British politeness or not, I wrote to them and I said, were you serious about that? And, uh, and people were kind enough to say, oh, yes, of course, stay with us, speak at the church on Sunday, and here's this host family whom you've never met, but they'll open up their homes to you. And it was just extraordinary, the, the kindness and the hospitality. Uh, that we received. And so Holly and I and our four kids, we were there for uh, about a week or so uh, on our own. And then my parents arrived and then her parents arrived. And it was just, just loads of fun. But about that halfway point of the trip, before the grandparents arrived, my, uh, our kids were kind of, they were kind of getting tired out of all the cathedrals, you know, and I have to admit, we took them to, they, they did really well, I and mean, we took them to some historic sites, and there were these grand cathedrals, but I remember we were looking at one, you know, Winchester Cathedral, and, and we're trying to tell them, you know, about the stone, and how the French taught the English how to make this kind of architecture, and they're like, boring, you know, and they're, they're trying, but they're kind of losing interest, but then, a, you know, a couple days Days later, grandparents arrived, and we're, we're going through these little English countryside villages called the Cotswolds, and there was this one place that just captured their attention for like a couple hours, which was a, a stunning thing. And it was this scale model of one of the villages in the Cotswolds. Now, this place was called Burton on the water, and, and we, 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 you know, we arrived off the bus, and we started looking around, and we thought we'd consult the map and all of this stuff, and then we discovered, actually, there's like a scale model of the entire village right here, so let's go see that, and so here we are walking along like giants, you know, and these things are really only about this big, but they're so detailed, there's like a miniature church with people in it, and stained glass, and so it was a cool way to kind of see the whole community in this scale model, and I, I was thinking about this because I think we are a little bit uh, like, this is a little bit like how we are with the kingdom of God. We, we get so swept up in wanting to talk about the kingdom like the cathedrals, the big grandiose spaces, oh, look at this, and, and all the big high-flying stuff that sometimes we miss the beauty, the beauty in the small and the local and the communal. And sometimes when we, when we talk about a book like Colossians, we've been in this series uh, now on the book of Colossians, and we're coming to the end of it. Today's the final piece of this. Colossians has this sweeping language. Sometimes it's called a, 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 a letter that gives us a picture of the cosmic 
Christ. And so we, could, we can think about the kingdom of God and all of this grand, he's the firstborn of the new creation, of the resurrection of the dead, and he holds all things together. And we're like, wow, 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 Jesus, kingdom, big, 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 big. And we miss the small, the local, the personal, the communal. We get swept up in the cosmic that we miss the community. And we get so caught up in the universal that we miss the personal. And this morning, I want us to look at the striking way that Paul ends his letter to the Colossians. He ends it with a list of instructions and greetings for people. Now, this might be the most ambitious sermon attempt ever to make a whole sermon out of this. But hang with me, I think there's something here. You see, for Paul, he didn't think that this grand revelation of Jesus is the King, Jesus is the Messiah, Jesus is the Lord, he didn't think that this grand revelation had to do with abstract things. For Paul, the implications of the gospel was planting a church. I've heard different people talk about kingdom in such grand language, and yet out of their same mouth come uh, a pejorative or sort of uh, uh, derogatory comments about the church. And so people are like, oh, I love King Jesus and I love the reign of King Jesus. And it's such grand language. Oh, King Jesus, the reign of God, blah, blah, blah. Oh, but the church. And that, that kind of division was, did not exist in Paul's mind. For Paul, it's because Jesus is king that we need a community of the kingdom. It's because Jesus reigns here and now that we need to belong to a community that reflects the kingdom. And so for Paul, there's, there's no discrepancy between Colossians 1, look at how Jesus is, and Colossians 4, greet these people, and he starts to name all these names. So look with me for a moment at all the names that Paul lists. Let's hear it again. But on the screen, we're, uh, I have, we've got bolded and underlined all of the different names. First, he says, Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He's a beloved brother, faithful minister, fellow servant. And then go on now to verse 9, next name. And he says, and with him Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother. We're going to talk in a moment about who Onesimus was. And Paul says, he's one of you. They will tell you everything that's taken place. And then verse 10, he says, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. And Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. We're going to talk a bit more about Mark in a moment, concerning whom you've received received instructions, welcome him. And then verse 11, and Jesus who's called justice. These are the only men of the circumcision, meaning Jewish believers, among the workers uh, that have been work workers for the kingdom of God. And then verse 12, he says, Epaphras, Epaphras is the one who planted this church here in Colossae. Epaphras, who's one of you, a servant of Christ, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers. And then verse 13, he says, for I bear him witness that he's worked hard. Verse 14, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha, the church that meets in her house. And then he keeps going, lists a couple more names. When this letter is being read, verse 17, say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you've received in the Lord. Name after name after name after name. Now be honest. When you come to a list of names in the Bible, that's the section you skip, right? You're, I mean, I, I'm like that too. You're like, okay, Bible reading, oh, I've got to read three chapters today. And you're like, oh, one of them is genealogy. Great, done. You know, <laughs> turn the page. You know? This is how we are, right? And someone said to me, look, the list of names in the Bible are boring unless it's your family they're talking about. 
right? I mean, you know that maybe you know the feeling some, some reporter has done a story on your workplace or your community and it shows up somewhere and you're like, oh, we got it. Here's our name. We're mentioned here. You'll read it extra carefully. You save the newspaper clipping. Nobody does that anymore. But you, you pay attention when it's your name. Well, Paul, Paul is listing these names because this is a letter that is going to be read out loud. He just said it. He said, read it out loud and then pass it on to the other church. Let them read it out loud. And he wants people to know the kingdom looks like, and then he starts to list all of these names. You see, the church is the community that makes the kingdom visible. The church is the community that makes the kingdom visible. See, we, say, we throw out phrases like kingdom, reign of God. And you're like, oh, wow, that just sounds abstract. But then you start naming people. And then you start naming places. And you're like, oh, that's what the kingdom looks like. Oh, the kingdom looks like Andrew and Katie. The kingdom looks like Alex and Angie. The kingdom looks like Harrison. The kingdom looks like AJ. The kingdom looks like Ryan and Laura. And you're like, oh, I know these people. That's what Paul wants. Paul wants you to hear these words and be, oh, that's what the kingdom of God looks like. Like this whole preeminent, supreme, sovereign Jesus and his reign that is arriving looks like ordinary people living this out in community together. The, it's the church. It, the church is the community that makes the kingdom visible. N.T. Wright says, the church for Paul was like a small working model of the kingdom of God. I love that idea. I mean, think about that miniature village, that model village, right? The church shows the world what the kingdom looks like. And so the world says, what are you talking about? Jesus is king. And we say, oh, it looks like this. It looks like how we care for one another. It looks like how we take meals to one another. It looks like how we show up at hospitals for one another. It looks like how we are able to, to keep up with each other's lives. It looks like this. It looks like building a new family life center for single moms and their kids who were living in their cars. That's what the kingdom looks like, right? And so the, the, the church makes the kingdom visible. But secondly, the church is the kind of community that makes the kingdom kind of life possible. Now, we, we're, we're Western individualists, right? So we tend to think that this is the life I want, and therefore I will map it out. Steps one, two, three, four, five, I will get there myself. And so we, we import that kind of approach into church. And so we hear a sermon, and we're like, oh, God says I should live like this. And we say, okay, great, I'll get right to it. And we start going bump, 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 bump. But actually, as human beings, it takes a whole community to make a certain kind of way of life possible. The, the ethicist and theologian Stanley Hauerwas uh, wouldn't talk about actions as isolated things or individuals as isolated things. Hauerwas would always ask, what kind of community made that kind of choice possible? What kind of community made that kind of action possible? What kind of, and, and both in the good and in the bad. See, one of the things you, you may know this, but the Dream Centers, everything Pastor Evan was talking to us about, Mary Home and all that, that was, that, that was started by New Life. It's a separate 501c3, but it is large, New Life Church is still its largest donor, which means all of you. And so when people say, oh, what is the church doing in the city? That's one of the things you can point to. In fact, the largest thing, and, and here's the great thing, one of the things I love about the Dream Centers is 
there's a women's clinic, so you know we care about pro-life beginning in the womb. We care about life beginning in the womb. But there's also an apartment complex for the moms and their kids. See, to be pro-life for us means from the womb to the tomb, means a comprehensive approach, not just saying, hey, let's eliminate that action, that, bad, that one bad action we don't like. We're trying to say, let's also change the whole culture so that a different kind of choice is possible. So that a different kind of life is possible, right? That's why we partner with the rescue mission for the, uh, with the men's recovery program. It's called the New Life Program, not because of us. It's just because we believe that in Christ, a new life is possible. So we're not, as Christians, targeting actions and saying, let's just change the actions. We're saying, let's change the community. So that a community can make a new kind of life possible. The church is the kind of community that makes the kingdom kind of life possible. So when we look at the kingdom kind of life, so, oh, the kingdom looks like the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. You say, okay, well, how do I do that? So, oh, well, we practice that. We're not good at it, but we practice that. And, and as we practice it with one, I get to practice kindness with you. You get to practice kindness with me. We get to practice patience with one another. And then all of a sudden, it's the community that makes the kingdom kind of life possible. Do you see that? And so for Paul, there's no distinction here. It's not like he's saying, oh, kingdom is this way. And then church is sort of, yeah, if you have free time on Sunday, go ahead and do that. That's the extracurricular. But as long as you've got Jesus, you're fine. Paul didn't talk like that. He, well, he didn't come announcing a gospel that was about King Jesus and you. He came announcing a gospel that said King Jesus is forming a kind of community that makes a kingdom life possible. Amen. This is difficult for us to see, but for Paul, there was no distinction. So I want to take some time this morning and talk now about what kind of community is that. Now let's say more about that. What, what exactly is the kind of community that the church is called to be? And I want to look at this list of names and highlight three things for you. Three things that are markers just from Paul's closing remarks about the kind of community the church is called to be. You ready? Number one, the church is called to be a community of difference. Difference. And by this I mean a community made up of all sorts of different people people from different backgrounds. Now look at just four differences, just in this list of names Paul mentions, okay? First, there's different social status. He names Luke as the beloved physician, a doctor. And then he names Onesimus. Who is Onesimus? Who is Onesimus? He's a runaway slave. Listen to this verse here in verse 9. And with him Onesimus, if you ever want to know more about Onesimus, read this small little letter called Philemon. Paul's writing to Philemon about Onesimus, and he says, Onesimus was a slave who ran away, but he's become very dear to me. I want you to welcome him back as a brother. And now look at what Paul says in, Col in his letter to the Colossians. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother. What a description. Not, you know, the guy who kind of got away. Our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. Paul wants to know, wants the, wants the Colossians to understand that what the church does, what the, what the church is, is a community of people who are from different stratas of society. Now, this may not be as pronounced for us today. It's still there. But in the first century, society was totally stratified. 
It was totally separated by class. You, you were either land-owning or not land-owning. You were free or you were a, sl- or you were a slave. You were, you were a male. You were, and so you had these hierarchies that were built up. And Paul said, it doesn't matter what your hierarchies and what your statuses are outside of the... When you gather here in Christ, that's beloved brother. That's beloved sister. That's faithful one. That's someone who is one of you. Isn't that amazing? What a phrase he says. Onesimus, who is one of you? Don't look and say, oh, well, that's not really my people. You know, we're downtowners. Those are Briargate people. <laughs> oh, those are Eastsiders. We live on the old North End. Those are powers people, right? No, Paul says, oh, all, all of you, you're, they are one of you. You belong together. Luke, Onesimus, you belong together. The church is a community of difference. And then he starts to name different ethnicities. So, so he, he names Jews, Aristarchus, Mark, and Justice. He says these are people of the circumcision. That's a phrase as a way of saying these are Jews who converted to Christianity or, or came to believe in Jesus as their Messiah. And then there's Gentiles, Epaphras, Luke, and Demas. Now, guys, this is another thing that for us, we're like, okay, Jews, Gentiles, whatever. There was no division in, in that, this region of the world in the first century sharper than the division between Jews and Gentiles. The Jews had centuries, generation after generation after generation, believing that they were God's chosen people. The Torah was given to them. The blessing was given to them. They had to keep themselves separate. They had to preserve their identity. They had specific ways of eating and specific practices and rituals. And so they said, fine, Jesus is the Messiah. Great. We'll believe in him as the Messiah, but he's our Messiah. And so Gentiles, okay, you can come in too, but you better become Jewish first. That's what some Jewish believers were saying. And so they said, okay, we're at church, church potluck. We're like, oh, those Gentiles over there, they can't sit with us. And the Gentiles are like, what? Who are you calling unclean? Like, bring over the bacon, right? I mean, like, what? I brought a bacon casserole to the church. And, and, and all, you have all these divisions around a simple thing like a meal because they couldn't even decide how to eat together. And Paul says, there's a list of Jews and there's a list of Gentiles. These are all my ministry associates. What are you talking about? Different ethnicities and nationalities get fitted together. And then he starts to list different genders. Listen to this in, in uh, verse 15. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church that meets in her house. Now, we don't know too much about what this means. Does it mean Nympha was presiding over the church in her house? Does it mean she was the host uh, of the church in her house? We know at the very least that she was a woman of means who, who was able to have a, a house with a large enough common area for a church to meet there. Even if that church was 30 or 40 people, that's a big house in the, in the first century, right? And so Paul's saying, Here, there, there's, there's male and there's female. Everyone gets to be a contributor in the church. Amen. Everyone gets to be a contributing member. No one is, oh, well, th- th- that's for those people. I just, I'm just here. He's like, no, no, there's different genders that are, the, the two different genders are, are allowed to be part of the community together, which, by the way, that idea was so radical that I, I read recently some letters from the Romans, even in the uh, 100s and the 200s, observing Christian communities and church gatherings, and they're like, we can't believe that men and women socialize together. And so they just assumed they must be doing nasty things. 
Because they couldn't, be, they just couldn't believe it. What do you mean they're gathering together, eating a meal? Like how could that be? It was the church that showed how non-sexual, loving relationships between male and female really ought to look. Boy, isn't that something we need to recover today in our world? And it's the church that that began to do this in a different way. And then this is my favorite kind of difference. There was a difference of ministry philosophy or ministry decisions. Paul names Mark who sometimes is, is named in the Bible as John Mark. I don't know if you remember the story of John Mark, but Paul's first missionary journey around the year A.D. 49, Paul and Barnabas went together, and Barnabas brought young John Mark with them. And like early in the missionary journey, John Mark's like, dude, I'm peacing out. This is not for me. And like their first stop, John Mark's like, y'all carry on. And Paul gets so mad about it that he's like, The next time that he and Barnabas have to decide who's going with who, Barnabas is like, we're bringing John Mark. Paul's like, we are not bringing John Mark. Barnabas is like, well, I'm bringing John Mark. Paul's like, well, I ain't going with you. And then Paul and Silas go this way and Barnabas and John Mark go the other way. You're like, this is Paul we're talking about. And here he names John Mark later in life, later in Paul's life, as if to say, okay, there's different ministry decisions. One decided to be on the go. The other decided to be the guy that stays. You, you know, maybe. I mean, let's have a little imagination, imaginative fun with this. Maybe Paul was like, we got to go. Like, like and a three on the Enneagram, you know. More cities, more churches to plant, you know. And maybe John Mark was like a six. And he's like, let's just stay. I kind of like this place, you know. Paul's like, all right, we're all part of the church together. So a community of difference. Verse 10, he says, Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, Concerning whom you have received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. What a phrase. Welcome him. We'll come back to that. Then, verse 18, Paul closes his letter and he says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. The church is called to be a community of remembrance. A community of remembrance. Now stop for a moment and just imagine this. An older Apostle Paul who's been beaten, who's been flogged, who's in jail, probably had, maybe even had daily um, uh, beatings. And he says to this, in his final words to this church in Colossae whom he's never met, he says, hey, remember my chains. Remember that I'm suffering here. Remember that I'm locked up. Just remember me. If you've ever walked through a dark night, if you've ever walked through a difficult season where you felt disoriented and forgotten and overlooked, you know how powerful it is that someone remembered you. You know how powerful it is for someone to say, hey, how are you doing? I'm praying for you. I, I know this story, this situation. I, 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 how is that? that? That was a month ago. That was two months ago. That was six months ago. This is what happens with people who are grieving is around a funeral, around the time of the catastrophe, everybody rallies, right? And then a month later, two months later, three months later, everyone just sort of forgets and moves on. But that person who's dealing with loss is still in it. And Paul's like, y'all, I'm still in jail. So just remember my change. I think one of the holiest gifts we can give one another is the gift of memory. The gift of remembering. I think parents do this with children. So I remember 
when you first da 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 da. I remember when you, and something sort of comes. Oh, really? Was I like that? I remember who you were. But friends do this too. Friends who've known each other for a lot of years, and they say, I. I remember when you first started that job. I remember when you first considering this thing. I remember when you first began that relationship. I remember, I remember, I remember when you walked through that dark night. I remember when you went through that tragedy. I remember when you first got the call from the doctor. I remember. And I remember how the Lord brought you through. And I remember how you made it. And I remember how you didn't think you were going to make it. And you made it. I remember when you were dealing with postpartum. I remember how you had a baby that wouldn't sleep at night. And I remember how it came over and helped you rock your baby with double ear infections. That really happened. Evan and Karen did that for us with Jane. I remember, and you remember. It's one of the holiest gifts we can give one another is the gift of memory. Earlier this year, Stephen Todd told me about a visit that, that he had had in to a small town in Germany and how he had literally tripped on something in the cobblestone street and came to find out this amazing story about these stones. And so I began to research it and it just sits about a quarter of an inch above the cobblestones and intentionally designed for you to trip over it. And it's got a person's name on it. And I was so fascinated by this story, I began to read up on it. And then I wrote a little section of, uh, about this in a, in a book that will come out next year, not intended to be a plug here, but, uh, but, <laughs> but it's called Blessed, Broken, and Given, and so I thought maybe you'd be interested in that. But um, I want to read you a little section. In the mid-1990s, an artist named Gunther Demnig began placing stumbling stones, or Stolperstein in German, around Berlin. He managed to place 55 of them, small, square, brass bricks, each with a name engraved on it. But these were not names of donors or of famous Berliners. These were names of Jewish victims of the Holocaust. For Demnig, a museum or memorial wouldn't quite do what, what is most needed. I think the large Holocaust memorial here in Berlin will always remain abstract, he says. You have to make the decision to visit it but not with the stumbling blocks. Suddenly, there they are, right outside your front door, at your feet, in front of you. The process, you see, is deeply personal and communal. Demnig relies on local residents, individuals and community groups, such as schools and religious organizations, to find out the names of slain Jews in their own community. These volunteers then research the last address where the victims lived so that the stones can be placed near it. It makes the horrors real, marking the exact place where a raid from the Gestapo or the SS led to the torture and death of their neighbors. Hedrick Chizetka grew up in an apartment complex where nearly 40 Jewish residents had been rounded up. Before 1933, the Charlottenburg neighborhood of Berlin had more Jews there than in any other part of the city. Yet few current residents had seemed interested in Demnig's Stumbling Stones project. So Shazetka took it upon himself to raise awareness and funds to place some 45 stones around the apartment houses on Pestalozzi Strasse. Everybody in the first place is responsible individually for remembering, he explained. 
One can't pass off everything to the state, and we are the state anyway. See, memory is important, not just for avoiding such events again, but in order to help each other heal. Helmut Lohoffel, the coordinator of the Charlottenburg Stumbling Block Initiative, sees the memorial stones as a way of honoring the dignity of each life. This is what she says. Six million Jews were killed, murdered, he said. The stumbling blocks make it clear that it was one plus one plus one. It makes clear that they were all individuals. As of 2012, there were more than 30,000 stumbling blocks all around German towns and cities. What a way to remember it. So that you just go through your normal life and you're like, and you remember by name, by place, one plus one plus one plus one. I think that's a little bit what it means for the church to be a community of remembrance. Lord knows, though I try, I'm not great at remembering everybody's names and stories. But New Life Downtown is not a congregation of a thousand people. New Life Downtown is one plus one plus one plus one. And the gift we give one another is to say, I know you. I remember your name. I remember your story. How's that going? How's this going right now? And when you see each other on Sundays, it becomes much more than Sundays because you've become a community of remembrance. And in remembering each other's chains and remembering each other's pain and remembering each other's names and stories, what happens is we re member each other. We take all the disparate members and we fit them back together again. We are remembered together by our memory of one another. That's what it means to be a community of remembrance. And then the final words in Paul's letter, it almost seems like a throwaway. Grace be with you. You're like, oh, come on. I close my emails with that. <laughs> You close your emails, I close my emails with that because Paul closed his letters with that. Paul used the word grace, the Greek word charis, more than any other biblical writer, by far. The entire Old Testament, written in Hebrew, the closest Hebrew word that's like the Greek word charis, grace, the closest Hebrew word is used about 68 times. In the Gospels, this word charis, written in Greek, is about 12 times or so. Paul's letters, which are a sliver of the entire Bible, Paul's letters use the word grace 144 times. That's why Paul's called the apostle of grace. Grace, 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 grace. And so when Paul's final words are, grace be with you, I don't think that's a throwaway line. I think that's Paul saying, the entire heart of the gospel is the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Let that grace be with you. And so the third thing the church is called to be is we're called to be a community of grace. A community of grace. One of the most powerful things we do together as a church is when we pray the prayer of confession together, what are the opening words? Most merciful God. Just the act of praying that prayer together as the church is a reminder to one another that God is gracious. 
God is great. Think about David's prayer, Psalm 51, which later became Israel's communal prayer. Psalm 51 says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. You know what the church does is we remind each other that God is gracious, that God is full of unfailing love, that God is merciful. The church shouldn't be the place where we, we scold one another in the name of God. The church shouldn't be the place where we manipulate and coerce and abuse and force and bully one another in the name of God. The church ought to be the place where we witness to one another, remind one another that God is the God of grace. Amen. According to your unfailing love, most merciful God. Amen. One of the best ways we live this out is by the way we are gracious to one another. Paul says about John Mark, he says, if he comes to you, welcome him. I just, I don't know why that gets me. Because I think of Paul, young Paul, and his missionary zeal saying, fine, we don't need him. And then I think of older Paul in chains saying, oh, John Mark, if he comes to you, welcome him. No more fights. No more arguments. No more splits. Just welcome him. Would you? Welcome him. In Paul's letter to the Romans, he says, welcome one another even as Christ has welcomed you. Parents, uh, the most important gift I think we can give our children is not our perfection. It's not even their perfection, Lord knows. <laughs> I think the most important gift we give our children is the gift of knowing how powerful grace is. Recently, I had one of those little showdowns of the wills with one of our kids. I know none of you probably have that. And I just thought, what is going on here? The words kind of escalated a bit and... I'm getting firmer in my tone, and we're talking afterwards. I'm like, I, and I'm talking to, to you know, it's, it's our son. I'm like, buddy, I, I, I just want you to be able to grow and to have this character to, to reflect God. And, and he's like, well, I, nobody can reflect God. <laughs> I'm like, well, that's, you got a point there, son. <laughs> and I said, I know, I know, I know. This is what we're called to be, but, and I said, but you know what? We all need God's grace. And we need God's grace not only to forgive us, but we need God's grace to re renew us and to change us and to make us different. My, some of my most powerful memories, parenting moments with my parents, were when my mom or dad would come to my room and say, I'm so sorry I overreacted to this. Parents, never underestimate. When you repent with your kids, you're giving them the gift of grace. And sometimes we think we got to hold it all together, that our gift to one another, church, we're in church, i got to be a good meal group member, i got to be a good meal group leader, i got to be a good friend, i got to be a, and, and we're, we're trying to hold it all together when the truth is only Jesus holds it all together. And you and me will never graduate from grace. 
We will never graduate from grace. And so the best thing we can be as a community is to be a community that points back to Jesus over and over again and says, hey, hey, I know you failed, but I failed too. And there's Jesus. And there's the grace of God. So grace be with you. Amen. And grace is what I need too. This morning I just sensed so strongly in my heart that there's so many of you that are striving that are struggling. And you hear Paul's words in this letter, and you're like, okay, okay, what do I need to do? What do I need to be? How, do, how can we be this? And to remember that you come here on a Sunday morning to be reminded of how powerful grace is. You come here on a Sunday to worship to remember how strong and beautiful and good grace is. It's the gift that changes everything. So as the worship team comes this morning, I, I, I want to invite you just to, to bow your heads and to be able to say again, this is why we do this. This is why I preach from the same floor that you're sitting at because I don't preach from an elevated place. We're all level at the foot of the cross. We're all here standing before the Lord's table saying, God, have mercy, most merciful God. We need your grace again. The church is a community of difference of remembrance, and of grace. And this is why we called the series, Jesus Holds It All.